We all like to think we're fast learners, but what does the research say about us performing better? On this episode, six research-based tactics that will help you achieve extraordinary performance. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 337. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show gives you access to the practical wisdom that will empower you to become a better leader. You hear me say that every week, leaders aren't born, they're made. We are always learning and developing our leadership skills if we want to have the privilege and the opportunity to be able to lead and influence others. Today's episode, I know, is going to challenge all of us to continue that process of developing ourselves as leaders, not only for our own benefit, but for the benefit of the people we have the privilege to influence, and of course, for the benefit of the organization as well. Today's guest has done a ton of thinking, but not only thinking, a tremendous amount of research on how to create extraordinary performance. And I know he's going to be helpful in helping us to get some immediate action around that. Morton Hansen is my guest today. He is a management professor at the University of California, Berkeley. He is the co-author with Jim Collins of the New York Times bestseller, Great by Choice. His academic research has won several prestigious awards, and he is ranked as one of the world's most influential management thinkers by Thinkers 50. He's the author of the new book, Great at Work, How Top Performers Do Less, Work Better, and Achieve More. Morton, I'm so glad to welcome you to Coaching for Leaders. Hey, good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, the thing that struck me first about this book was the research behind it. Tell us about who you studied and the research that led to the findings that you profile in the book. Yeah, we decided to study a large sample of 5,000 people across corporate America. So that includes a wide range of industries, financial services, consumer goods, retail, manufacturing, and so on, including many different roles, HR, sales, marketing, and so on, and including senior leaders as well as junior people. And to do that, we have to have a large sample of 5,000 people, and that has formed the data set for this study to try to understand one very fundamental question. Why do some people perform better in the job than others? I'm sure that's a question that we all want answers to, including myself, so I can learn how to improve on the job. When we think about performance improvement, I, I think back to the book, outliers that came out uh, seven or eight years ago by Malcolm Gladwell. And he famously coined this term, the 10,000 hour rule. And uh, this this is not what Gladwell said necessarily, but the perception of this in the business world is that if you spend 10,000 hours doing something, you'll be among the top in the world. Morton, I've literally had people I've worked with over the years calculate out the number of hours that they've been doing something in their careers and uh, multiply out the years and conclude that they were near or past the 10,000-hour standard and and then claimed, (laughs) at least in their own minds, world-class status. And uh, it was interesting that you point to this troubled logic in the book. And so I'm I'm wondering if you could walk us through what's the concern with that line of thinking. Right. I mean, first of all, as you pointed out, I'm not criticizing Malcolm Gladwell's writing per se. He was actually more nuanced, nuanced in his book. But the perception has 
become, as you said, that what you require to master a skill or a profession is 10,000 hours of practice. And that has become a mantra. That's sort of what people took away from it. And when you look at the underlying research that is pioneered by Professor Anders Eriksson at Florida State University, they actually pointed to two fundamental drivers of performance improvement. Yes, one is ours, but even more importantly is how you practice. And that is what they call deliberate practice. And it's the idea of a learning system whereby you do something, you get feedback on it immediately, you modify your behavior, and that requires a lot of concentration and intense focus to do. And in fact, when you study musicians and athletes, they can only do that for three to four hours a day. In other words, they can't do that all day long because it's so hard. Now, these are professionals, that's the only thing they do. So what I have done in my research when I studied how do people learn and improve, including leaders and junior people, is to take that idea and study it in the workplace. Now, at work, we have to do it differently. We cannot run around practicing something for four hours. I mean, that would be impossible. You've got to get a job done in addition. So I call it a learning loop. It's the idea of trying to learn while you're working. And that's the most effective way of learning to become better. But that's really what this is about. It's the quality of your learning. It's not your quantity, the 10,000 hour rule, that really matter in, in terms of improving your performance at work. And that's really what I saw in my data set that the top performers, they weren't just mindlessly repeating an activity like running a meeting on autopilot, they were trying to improve that very activity. So it's almost like practice doesn't really make perfect. Practice makes permanent if you keep doing it the same way. You really want to have deliberate practice with learning and coaching in order to get better at doing something. Absolutely. And that's that's the key. I mean, if you just do something over and over again, but it's by and large the same way, then, you know, it doesn't matter whether you have 10,000 hours, 100,000 hours. You know, you're not going to get to become a top performer with that kind of, of approach. Now, I would say one thing that surprised me in our study, when we looked at, you know, how many people, how many managers actually deployed this kind of, of learning? And there are very few. It's, it's surprising to me because in other arenas of life where we see top performance, like in sports and, and music and the performing arts and so on, that's what they do to become a real top person in their field. So, but when it comes to management and leadership, we sort of, we go to training, right? It's offline, it's an executive education seminars, and they might be very helpful. But what are we doing when we are actually working? And that's what this learning loop is about, is trying to improve while you're working. I love the analogy you use in the book, and I can't remember which athlete you gave the example for, but, it, but if you think of the ridiculousness of a professional athlete of getting a, a once-a-year annual performance evaluation from their coach <laughs> and getting feedback on something yeah. and then going yeah. a whole other year. And yeah, yet that's I, I what we using, do. <laughs> exactly. I was using the, uh, you know, the example of Roger Federer, you know, the tennis star. Yeah, that's it. And, and imagine his coach was looking at him for a year you know, and his serve, and then they sit down for the annual performance evaluation meeting. 
And the coach says to Roger, you know what, I, you, you were serving a tad to the left, you know, too much last year. Next year, could you please serve a little more to the right? That's how we do it. It's absurd because rapid learning at work really requires nimble, immediate feedback. Otherwise, how can you improve in the moment? I, I love the idea of the learning loop. And that was the thing that really leapt off the pages to me as I was reading the book that uh, like you, I, I think, wow, it's interesting we're not doing more of this in organization. Some some organizations are, some leaders are. But I'm, I'm wondering if you could, so we could really get our heads around this, could you break down kind of the key steps of the learning loop? What should we be doing in order to create a learning loop for ourselves and for others? Right. So in the book, I talk about six tactics, and this is kind of where it differs from, say, what an athlete would do, because there are unique challenges in the workplace. So the first one, the tactic is what I call carve out the 15. Think about it as 15 minutes a day. You don't need more because you're doing the work anyway. So what you have to do is to focus on one skill that you want to improve. Because if you say, I'm actually going to try to improve five skills this week, you're not going to be focused. You're not going to be doing anything because you don't have time for five. So you pick one. Now, which one should you pick? Well, that's a reflection. You know, where, where do I think my, my greatest scope of improvement is? Is it around running meetings? It's around feedback to the staff? It's around making sales pitches? I mean, you can apply this for making a sales pitch. Is it around meeting with customers? You know, whatever the skill is, is it prioritizing? Is it setting strategy? Is it allocating resources? Right? Whatever the skill is, and these are kind of professional skills we're talking about. I'm not talking about sort of technical skills, but more as a leader, your leadership capability consists of a set of professional skills in leading your organization and the people. And these are the skills we're talking about. So many people call them soft skills, if you will. But you've got to carve out one. That's the first thing. Just decide for yourself for the next six weeks, I'm doing this one skill, right? That's the first thing. So I want to ask but, you about this 15 minutes, um, because this seems really, really simple. And a, a few years ago, I, I remember I was trying to learn how to play guitar. And so mm-hmm. my instructor said, well, just carve out 15 minutes a day. And I was like, oh, 15 minutes, that's easy. Mm-hmm. I can do that. And yet I was really shocked and <laughs> it's sad, but I wasn't able to do that consistently. And so when you are working with people and coaching people, how do you find that you're able to get leaders to start to get deliberate about really taking meaningful action for 15 minutes a day? Yeah, I mean, it's it's true. I mean, 15 minutes a day doesn't sound like much at all. And everybody says, yeah, sure, I can do that. But then, you know, you start off the day, it's busy, it's filled with meetings and, you know, phone calls and whatnot. And then you don't do the 50 minutes. And then you say, well, you know, at the end of the week, you know, I'm going to do an hour to catch up. But then you're not doing that. So you're falling behind. It's the consistency of it that does matter. But what I figure out is, or at least this is what I advise, is that you, you pick this one skill and you kind of focus on that skill. So if you say, well, I'm just going to ask better questions in meetings, that's the one skill. It's a very small skill. It's not that, that big or leading debate in meetings, if you say that, right? Then uh, when I prepare the meeting, that's when I carve out the 15. So it's tied to what I'm supposed to be doing. Ah, And, so- and that, that really, you know, okay, I need, I need to go in and lead a meeting. I'm going to put in my calendar 50 minutes prep time, right? So put it in the calendar, 50 minutes prep time before the meetings. I mean, if that's your skill that you're trying to improve. So one of the key things I hear is, not just the time, but how we're framing it. So going back to my guitar example, right. if yeah. it, rather than saying like, okay, I'm going to practice guitar 15 minutes a day, you know, this week, I'm going to spend 15 minutes a day practicing my C chord to make sure that I really 
perform that well or my pick my strumming right. pattern or whatever it is so that it's much more specific about what i'm what i'm focusing on exactly it's that that idea of okay i'm, I'm targeting improvement in that area and that's yeah. front and center is that what you mean also by the i know the second tactic you mentioned in the book is called chunk it and it's yeah. it's about breaking things down into micro behaviors tell me more about yeah. what that means yeah so we we thought about how do you actually practice these kind of generic skills so um, say the skill is to lead a better debate in meetings. I'm just using that as an example because so many managers, they are tasked with leading meetings and discussions in meetings. And by the way, that's the other thing we found in our you know, research. Meetings should be for one thing only, for debate. If you're using meeting for status update, you can put that in email. You don't need to get people in a room to share information. I mean, you might have seen that mug out there, you know, I survived another meeting that should have been an email. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. So, okay, so if it's for debate, then we need to lead debates. All right, now that's kind of a generic, vague thing. I mean, how, where do I start? How do I lead a debate? And that's why I call it chunk it. And this idea of, of micro behaviors. And micro behaviors is a very small, concrete action that you can take on a daily basis to improve a skill. And that's where you get the 50 minutes. So if we're talking about micro behaviors in terms of running a meeting and, and leading a debate. Okay, so let's think about the micro behavior. Start by asking open-ended questions. Play a devil's advocate in a meeting. Ask somebody to pick out the minority point of view. Ask someone on the team to debate the assumptions. Uh, these are very specific behaviors that constitute a good debate. So you kind of need to sit and write these down. So what are the sort of very specific tactics, if you will, that I can actually practicing? And that becomes important because if you do that, then what you're getting is something you can actually implement. I can ask open-ended questions. I can prep for 50 minutes around that. But if you tell me, lead a debate, well, I don't know exactly where to begin. So we need to kind of get down to the specific, something we can implement and practically speaking in those, in those meetings uh, as an example. And this will go for, for any other skill that you're trying to, to, to generate. So that's the, the, the chunk it. And then comes the, the third uh, tactic, which is what I call measure the soft. So the problem here is that you need to measure the outcome. I mean, how, how is this going? Is this meeting running better? And here, you know, athletes have a real advantage. They can measure the outcome and how fast did I run? Did, the, did I catch the ball? Did I, a golf ball, where did it land, right? I can have very precise measures of the outcomes. In the workplace, we don't. You don't have a metric that says this meeting was a seven out of a scale of 10, right? We, we don't have that. But what we can do, when I say measure the soft, we can measure some behaviors around these micro behaviors. So there is an example in the book that I think illustrates this really well. It's a supervisor in a hospital called Brittany Gavin, and she leads this staff that is responsible for all the meal services and all those things in this hospital. And she has this team. And she, they weren't doing so well. The, the patients weren't getting the food and the quality of the food that they should get. And so she wanted this team to come up with ideas for how to improve their delivery service. Now, she had these brainstorming meetings. 
And so again, it's about meetings. And she was asking these people to come up with ideas and it didn't go well at all because she didn't know how to answer questions. So she asked kind of the wrong questions and nothing came out. And then when something came out, she dropped the ball on those. And so really nothing weren't really happening. And then she started figuring out, okay, let me measure the micro behaviors, asking good questions and soliciting ideas. So Brittany then started measuring the ideas produced in a meeting. In the first bad meetings, there were no ideas. Bad outcome, modify my question and how I solicit the ideas. Next meeting, oh, here was an idea, there's progress. And then the following meeting, maybe two ideas, better ideas, right? So she was measuring ideas. And over a period of more than 12 months, she plotted the number of ideas generated and the number of ideas implemented. And he got the more than 120 ideas generated and 80 ideas implemented. And all the results then were shooting up, like food quality, patient satisfaction scores, and so on. Now, but she was doing that by, by categorizing and counting a metric. So this is practicing the learning loop. We do something, we break the skill down to practical tactics, we chunk it, we get feedback, and we get measurement, and we modify our behavior. And that's what she was doing every week for a whole year and became a top performer in the hospital as a result. This is a really powerful example of something that I, I run into a lot, and I'm, I'm sure you do too, is people saying, well, I can't measure this because it's a soft skill uh, or it's a it's communication or it's something that's intangible. And I found that, um, like you've just articulated, more often, we may not always be able to measure it in the same way we would for sports, like you point out. But there's a leading indicator that we can measure, like the number of questions. And and one of the things I think is really brilliant in the book, and I don't think we'll have a chance to get into it today, is just how you talk about how to build debate within meetings and within teams for better outcomes. Um, so using that as an example, what would be what would be an example of rather than just saying something like, "Well, I want to." I want to see if my team does a better job debating in meetings. Mm-hmm. What would be like a, a measurable indicator of that that someone could watch for? So I think, first of all, you want to ask about feedback on your particular behaviors. So if you are trying to have a debate where there are more alternatives in a room, so number of, number of alternative perspectives in a room, you can, after the meeting, send out a quick feedback and say, okay, what's your assessment of, of the debate today and the number of alternatives we considered. And you can get feedback. In fact, we, in my research uh, uh, and my team at Berkeley, we actually built an app that, that allows a leader to send out those quick email or notifications and get back 140 character feedback to make it quick and easy. And there are certain apps out there that do these kind of things. That's just one mechanism, it doesn't have to be that. But then you're getting kind of quick subjective feedback and it's qualitative feedback. So that would be one thing. I think in terms of of meetings, you could have some intermediate metrics. You can have, for example, number of alternatives considered, number of decisions uh, made, number of assumptions scrutinized in the decisions. So you can have a little bit of a scoreboard of of what constitutes high quality decision making really in those meetings. And, And obviously if you are having high quality decisions, then you should start seeing those in result. So you've put in these kind of intermediate metrics, and it depends on the situation. But there are ways in which we can measure this. We don't have to say, I can't measure it, so I'm not going to pay attention to it. Well, and part of what I'm hearing you say, and, and it's clearly evidenced in the research in the book, is there's, there's almost always a way to measure it. In fact, there's multiple ways to measure it. So the key is, is getting 
clear on what are those indicators that you can measure, what are you paying attention to that you know are going to lead to the results that you want. Like you said, you know, number of ideas in a meeting in and of itself isn't the result, but it, it's going to lead to the place that's going to help the team to be more successful. And um, and you mentioned a moment ago one of the other key tactics, the, the fourth tactic of getting feedback. And you say in the book, getting nimble feedback fast. Tell me what you mean by that. Yeah, this goes to what we were talking about, you know, the annual performance review, which is a terrible way of getting feedback once a year. And we're seeing increasing number of companies just stopping doing annual performance reviews. Now, if you're going to practice a learning loop, you need feedback right away. Again, going back to meetings, if that's what you're focusing on to do better meetings, then once people leave the room in that meeting, you need feedback right there and then. You can't wait a week because people have forgotten about it. And, and then it needs to be nimble. We don't need to send out length for surveys. People are tired of length for surveys. You're not going to get the feedback. But the very quick feedback, if I'm walking between two meetings and I'm getting some kind of request for feedback, either orally to the person or via some system in your phone, I can jot down something that takes me maybe 20 or 30 seconds to write and I can send it in and I have now given feedback on what I thought about that meeting. That's nimble and quick and it allows the person who needs the feedback to collect it easily and then modify behavior. This is the kind of feedback we need in the workplace. And if you have a great mentor, a boss, that will do it on a continuous basis informally. But most of us don't have that. And, and, and so we need some other mechanism to get more of this informal, nimble, quick, easy, short feedback. All right. So let's tackle the fifth tactic, which you call in the research, dig the dip. What does that mean? So let me use an example to illustrate what I mean by digging the dip. And this example comes from Professor Freck Vermeulen at the London Business School, who did a fantastic study of fertility clinics in the UK. And there were two groups of fertility clinics. There were one where the doctors were treating easy to treat patients, women who were younger and didn't have a history of problems to get pregnant. And then there was another group of clinics who treated also more difficult to treat patients, those with problems than older women. Now, in the first group, they had a higher success rate because they were treating, after all, yeah, easier to treat patients. But over time, which of these two groups of fertility clinics do you think had the greatest success rate? The second, and it's funny you mention this because my wife and I went to a fertility doctor when we were trying to have kids, and I remember hearing about this work. And we looked, that's why we didn't zero in just on the success rate, um, because we found out some of the, the findings of the study, which is just fascinating. Yeah, it is. And, and so what happened in that group is that they learned from the hardest to treat patients. And once they got those learnings, they've implemented that in new methods and techniques for even easier to treat patients. So in other words, they were lowering their success rate in the beginning to become far better later on. Mm. And that's what I mean by the dig in the dip. If we want to improve our performance, we have to be willing to take a little bit of a short-term hit. When we start trying something new, when we try an experiment, we have to allow for variance because by the very nature, some of them will fail. Some of them will have a slower start. And so if we want to be a real top performer and really go to the top and be excellent, we have to allow for these kind of short-term dips 
That's what I meant. That's what happened with this uh, set of fertility clinics that were not as successful in the beginning, but over time they beat the other clinics. So when you start an experiment, if you try, say, a new sales pitch, if you're a salesperson, a sales leader, and you say, okay, I figured out a pitch that works, but to become even better, you have to try something new. Now, sometimes that might actually set you back. Other times it will work, and then you keep that one, and now you're even better than you were before. Now, you can do this in a smart way. The smart way would be to try, say, the sales pitch on an unimportant client, not your biggest client in the most important sales pitch you're making for the year, obviously. But you have to be able to create that kind of allowance for a little bit of a setback, a little bit of a failure in order to become even better. There's the old adage that if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And I think most of us realize the limitations of that. And yet it's so easy to get caught up in just, well, this has worked all this time. I'm just going to keep doing it. And as you point out, they're, they're smart and they're dumb ways to experiment. And one of the, the smart ways and the people who your research shows Mm-hmm. continue to get better are the people who are doing that regularly. If they're doing those small tests, like they're, they may not be doing it with the number one client, but they're doing it regularly in small tests to see what works and what doesn't in order to get better. Exactly. And that brings me to the, this, the last tactic, which is if you want to become a really, really good in your job and even better than you are, you have to confront the stall point. The stall point is this. We become certain competent at a certain skill. We've become good managers. And then we hit the stall point. We're not getting better. And why is that? So research has looked into this. And it's because people are on autopilot. They become a habit. You run a meeting a certain way. You set the priorities for the week in a certain way. You do a sales call a certain way. You talk to your staff in a certain way. These are habits. And habits are important because if we had to think through everything we do in a day, you're going to make us crazy. So we need habits, but habits also means you're on autopilot. And when you're on autopilot, you will not become better. So you have to confront that and say, the only way I can get even better is that I reject the autopilot. I say, I'm not good enough. I am not good enough to running meetings. I'm not good as a manager in X, Y, and Z. And that's a difficult thing. It requires humility because after all, this is your identity. You become where you are in your career because you're good, but it's not going to take you to the next level. And I love this quote that I use in the book here uh, from Magnus Carlsen, who is the world champion in chess. He's one of these incredible chess players out there. He's defended his world championship now uh, two times. So he's a three-time world champion in chess. And the first time when he became a champion, um, he said this. So this is now the world greatest chess player. He says, I'm still far away from really knowing chess. There's still much I can learn and there's much still I don't understand. And this makes me motivated to keep going, to understand more and more and develop myself. Highest ever rated chess player in the world. And then you are the world champion and you say, I have so much to learn and it keeps me motivated to keep going. We need that kind of humility to confront the stall points and then become even greater. This is where what you mentioned earlier about the misperception about the 10,000 hours really plays out is this, this belief that you know if we just clock enough hours, we're going to get better. And I, I love the research you mentioned in the book about uh, some of the studies that have looked at teachers and how teachers mm-hmm. with 
I think is 27 or 28 years of experience, yeah. were not that much more effective in most cases than teachers with two years of experience because of the stall point of they hit that two or three years, many teachers, and they, they're good enough at what they're doing, and they don't right. push themselves further. And it's not just teachers, by the way, it's all of us. It, absolutely. I mean, myself included. You, I'm a teacher. I develop a teaching plan. It has worked. After three years, do I really tinker with it? No, I know it works, so I don't want to... <laughs> You know, I don't want to challenge it. Yeah. Right? So I, yeah. I hit a stall point. But if we want to become, you know, much better, we have to confront this. You're absolutely right. So one of the things I'm hearing out of this is we've got to learn to become comfortable with mediocrity, with making mistakes occasionally, like you point out in, in testing in small situations, not necessarily our entire day or our entire work, but We've got to get comfortable with making ourselves uncomfortable if we want to move past the stall point and really get to extraordinary performance. Right. And, and Professor Carol Dweck at Stanford University has spent a lot of time and, and, and a lot of research showing this, that there are these kind of two different ways you can approach your work. One is sort of with a fixed mindset. I'm, I'm, I have a certain talent and this is, you know, talented people. They become, you know, good at something and, and that's, you know, you don't become that much better. And then there are other people who have a growth mindset. They believe that they can become better. They have that humility that Magnus Carlsen, the chess player, has. And they seek to improve themselves. And if you approach work that way, then you have a far better chance of becoming a much better performer. And the good news is, in this learning loop, it's not like a massive change. It's just starting a little by little, yeah. you know, carving out that 50 minutes and focusing on a certain task. They say, and only one, I call it the power of one. Pick one thing over the next six weeks. And a specific thing and say, okay, I'm going to try to improve on this one thing for the next six weeks. Well, I really appreciate what you said here. There's so much I'm thinking of just as I'm coaching people and working with members of our academy that's that's coming up. And, and in the spirit of what you were just saying, I mean, you, you uh, by most measures are a really successful guy. You're on Thinkers 50. You've written a bunch of best-selling books. Uh, you're a professor at one of the top universities in the world. What's a time that you failed and what did you learn from it? So I just use an example of where I actually apply the learning loop. So when I was an academic, and this is about 10 years ago, I had not done a lot of keynote speaking in conferences, you know, for managers. So when I started doing that, I, I literally did not do well, uh, haven't done it. And, and you're up against the greats, right? The, the fantastic speakers out there. Yeah. What, what had happened that you knew you weren't doing it well? Well... It, well, you get a sense, and then you get some feedback, and and you get some ratings. <laughs> it's like restaurant ratings, right? You know, and Yelp. You know, it's, it can be brutal. Uh, but at, least have, at least you have feedback, right? But then I said, okay, I can learn this skill. I can learn this skill. So I got a coach, speaking coach, and I said, okay, let's break it down. All right, what are the six or seven elements of a great performance? All right. You got to have clean slides with a good story. Okay, so we're going to work on the slides. Okay, that's maybe the easiest. Your performance on stage. Okay, so one has to do with your positioning of your body. Another way has to use with your hands, uh, your voice, um, uh, your lines that you're delivering. You can break down, uh, and these coaches do, into a great sort of um, set of tactics. And then when my book Collaboration came out and the book Great by Choice with Jim Collins came out, I started getting a lot of speaking engagement and I just started improving them one after the other. So this is what I did. For each, each talk, keynote that I give at a conference, I would focus on one skill. 
So my coach says, okay, when you got on a stage, don't pace around like a tiger, stand like a cement on the floor for the first two minutes. Okay, I can do that. After I go, right? Practice that skill. Took a video recording, took the five minutes and sent it to my coach and say, okay, I could see you. Almost, almost good, but let's modify. Next one, look at people when you talk and use your hands properly. Okay, worked on that. Video recording, quick feedback. It sounds like a lot of work, but it wasn't because I was doing the speeches anyway. Yeah. And my improvement rate, you know, skyrocketed. And I know this because after a certain time, I got these excellent ratings. And now I am, you know, the, I get really, really good ratings of doing this. But it was because I said I can go from where I was, the failure, to this much better performance because I can learn a skill by applying the learning loop. Well, it's an exactly what you found in the research, and it's how the great coaches work too. Like you talk to Marshall Goldsmith and the people who do top coaching the top leaders, they're focusing on one thing at a time with people, uh, getting good at that, that 15 minutes a day, just like you're talking about. And over time, it makes all the difference in the world. Absolutely. And I think one thing I learned too, and it's in this study, having a coach is wonderful. Sometimes you cannot afford it, but you can start having this process yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Right? This is not something you, you need to have a coach doing for you. It's excellent if you have it, but we can't all have coaches all the time for every skill. And they're not sitting in all our meetings either, observing you. So uh, you could, we can all apply this methodology, this idea of deliberate practice or, or learning loop in the workplace. Morton Hansen is the author of Great at Work, How Top Performers Do Less, Work Better, and Achieve More. Morton, these tactics are super helpful. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Lots of past episodes related to today's conversation. If you go over to coachingforleaders.com slash podcast, it'll take you right into the library. You'll see all the topics there. If you click on the training button, one of the episodes you'll pull up is episode 31, Five Effective Ways to Train the People You Lead. That is a solo show for me where I walk through some of the most effective ways I've seen leaders coach their people in my 15 plus years now in the training industry and watching leaders do that both effectively and poorly and some of the lessons I've learned. That'll be a helpful episode if you're looking for ways to teach others some of the skills we talked about today. Also valuable would be episode 157, why it's essential to struggle with learning. That's under the talent development topic on the podcast library. Uh, in that episode, I talked about why struggle is so critical. Boy, I wish it wasn't the case. Uh, yet, struggle is actually a really good indicator that we're pushing ourselves and that we are learning something new. And if you find yourself at a place right now where you are dealing with a lot of new things coming at you, I think that episode will really help to frame uh, how to deal with that, but also how to move forward. Again, that's episode 157 under the talent development tab. Also, one of the topics in the podcast library is an is employee engagement. You will find episode 181 there, Create the Best Place to Work. Ron Friedman was on the show talking about his book where and the research he did looking at uh, what organizations are doing to create ideal workplaces, very closely related to today's conversation. If you are uh, having an opportunity to be thinking about how you can 
redo things in the workplace or make changes that will help to create a great place to work. Episode 181 is definitely one to check out. And also, I'd recommend under the talent development topic, episode 273, Essentials of Adult Development. Mindy Dana was my uh, my guest on that episode, and we talked about the different stages of adult development, something that is really helpful to know, not only for ourselves, but also helpful to be conscious of when you're working with others of where they may be in those stages and having knowledge of them will help you to teach, coach, and of course, lead more effectively. So you can access all of those just by going to coachingforleaders.com slash podcast. If you don't already have a free membership on the Coaching for Leaders website, it'll prompt you to set one up and that will give you access to all of those episodes, searchable by topic, also a ton more. Uh, my book notes are in there, the library, the member cast, also access to my free 10-day audio course titled 10 Ways to Empower the People You Lead. It'll give you immediate practical actions to become a better leader. If you're not on the free membership, you're missing out. <laughs> Get on the free membership. Go over to coachingforleaders.com. Tons more being added there all the time. In fact, uh, almost daily now, I'm putting up new book notes and resources that will be resourceful to you. So check that out for sure. Next week, I am really glad to welcome Kristen Hadid to the show. She is the founder and CEO of Student Made, a very cool organization in Florida that is uh, hiring and developing college students to do some amazing work. And Kristen is the founder of the organization. She started it herself, and she's going to be teaching us about how to mess stuff up. (laughs) That's right. She's the author of the new book, Permission to Screw Up. She has got a ton of stories. I think you'll enjoy listening to everything she has to share with us next week. Hey, thank you to Buff RPH and Glenjamin317 here in the States for the great reviews you left on iTunes. Thank you. Marlon SKK from Canada for the review as well. Thank you so much. If you've been listening to the show for a bit and you would like to leave a review, I always love reading them. Coachingforleaders.com slash iTunes is where to go. Have a fabulous week. See you next Monday to chat with Kristen. Take care.